This morning, we have some really interesting readings to talk about. From Genesis, we have the beginning of the Joseph story, one of my all-time favorite Bible stories. And from Matthew, we have Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. Good stuff, that. The story of Joseph is one of the best-known stories after, say, the creation story. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice collaborated to create the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat based on this material. You've heard me mention this musical before, and you'll probably hear about it again because I enjoy the show so much. The passage this morning is the very beginning of the Joseph story, which runs from chapter 37 through chapter 50, which is the very end of the book of Genesis. It bears mentioning that the 12 sons of Jacob will become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Also recall that Joseph's father is Jacob, of that oft-referred-to triumvirate Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, Joseph's grandfather is Isaac, and his great-grandfather, Abraham. One might say, good genes. <laughs> Joseph is 17 years old at the time the story begins. Oddly, the revised common lectionary has chosen to omit from this morning's reading a very important part of the story, Joseph's first recorded dreams. Without this information, Joseph's brothers hating him enough to want to kill him doesn't make much sense. Briefly, the omitted material tells of Joseph having two dreams. Both of the dreams appear to place Joseph in a position of superiority over his brothers, and possibly even his father Jacob, maybe even ruling over them. Add to this Jacob's all-too-obvious favoritism of Joseph over his other sons, with sibling, sibling rivalry being what it is and always has been, it's easy to imagine the brothers are being mightily annoyed by Joseph and his dreams. And they are. The dreams lead to his falling from his favored position and being sold into slavery in Egypt. He again gains a position of favor as a slave only to lose it again and be thrown in prison. There, his ability to interpret dreams leads to his being sought out by Pharaoh, who was having huge dream problems. Joseph correctly interprets Pharaoh's dreams. In gratitude, Pharaoh makes him his second-in-command, with authority over the entirety of the kingdom we might say that Joseph regained a position of favor in Spain. There's an interesting area to explore here. When the brothers have made their decision to do away with Joseph, conveniently, there appears a party of Ishmaelites, nomadic, nomadic caravan traders. They are supposed, by popular tradition, to be descendants of Abraham's illegitimate son, Ishmael, by his slave girl, Hagar. 
He was 13 years older than Abraham's legitimate son, Isaac. But Hagar and Ishmael were expelled from Abraham's household soon after Isaac was born, and the boys did not grow up together. Thus, Joseph was sold into slavery to the descendants of his great uncle. Another tradition says that the Ishmaelites are the forebears of Islam. So the promise given by God to Hagar while she held the child Ishmael in the desert, quote, I will make him a great nation, close quote, may have been fulfilled. The Ishmaelites carried Joseph to Egypt, where he was sold to one Potiphar, an Egyptian, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. In Pharaoh's house, in Potiphar's house, Joseph prospered and was made overseer of the household in charge of all that Potiphar had, and that was a good bit. You know there has to be a fly in the ointment, and there is. Joseph was quite good-looking. Potiphar's wife tried mightily to seduce Joseph, but he was having no part of it. <coughs> Enraged by Joseph's rejection, she finally set him up in a trap, and he was thrown into prison. There, his ability to interpret dreams came to his rescue. I want to point out that throughout this lengthy story, throughout his entire life, Joseph always clung to his faith in God. Whether being sold into slavery or being cast into prison, Joseph always kept his faith that God had big plans for him. And God rewarded Joseph's faith. The Old Testament reading next week is from the climax of the Joseph story, and I'll have more to say about it then. Our reading from Matthew is the great story of Jesus walking on the lake of Genesaret, or if you prefer, the Sea of Galilee, they're the same thing. Matthew, like Mark before him, places this story immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, which we heard last week. This is good writing, for the second story builds on the first. In the feeding story, we see that the authority of Jesus is not limited to healing sin and sickness. He can also command nature by miraculously multiplying the meager amount of food on hand to satisfy more than 5,000 <coughs> souls with plenty left over. And this week we see that he can command the forces of weather, and they obey him. Specifying that this event happened in the fourth watch of the night indicates that it was between 3 and 6 a.m. The disciples are not out on the lake on some foolish lark, but on Jesus' direct order. Storms come upon the just and upon the unjust. The little boat they occupy is being beaten by the waves, a very realistic image, making the disciples terrified for their survival. They see Jesus walking toward them and suppose him to be a ghost, 
and are yet more terrified. But he tells them, take heart, it is I. I want to mention here that the short phrase, it is I, can also be rendered as, I am. Recall that since the time of Moses, I am has been the name of God. Another of the Bibles plays on words that don't translate into English. Allow me a digression. With the popularity of cruising nowadays, I imagine that a good number of you have spent time at sea. I have always loved the sea and have taken many voyages. On one of them, I spent four days in a South Pacific typhoon with winds of 75 miles an hour and seas in excess of 40 feet. The ship was regularly burying her bow in the oncoming waves, water flooding the foredeck. Believe me, there was no competition for seats in the dining room. <laughs> Looking out at those mountainous seas, stretching beyond the horizon for days on end, hearing the howling winds, listening to the ship's stabilizers trying to keep her on an even keel, the awesome power of God in nature can't help but hit you right between the eyes. One feels very insignificant and utterly powerless. The thought of being on those seas in a small boat is not a pleasant thought. Now think of the disciples in their little boat. The lake of Genesaret is notorious for sudden violent storms. While it is only perhaps five miles wide at the place where the evangelists indicate that this event took place, <coughs> that is a vast eternity in a tiny craft powered only by a small sail, and that probably swept away by this point, and by oars. The disciples are duly terrified. Now imagine the feeling of one Peter, an experienced fisherman, well acquainted with the power of storms on this lake. Somehow, he summons the courage to ask Jesus to bid him come join him on the raging sea. Jesus bids him. And Peter digs deep and gathers the faith and the courage to step out of the boat onto the tumult. At some point, the display of the fury of nature overcomes his faith and courage, and he begins to sink. But Jesus pulls him back up and rebukes him for lacking faith. Jesus and Peter then step into the boat storm instantly ceased. The disciples then worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There are yet two more chapters in Matthew before, in response to Jesus' direct question, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
The 3995 term for this latter event is the Petrine Confession. I should mention that in Mark's account of this incident, there is no mention of Peter at all. Not him walking on the sea, nothing. In my mind, the common thread uniting these readings is a lesson on the importance of having faith. Joseph keeps his faith through some truly harrowing experiences and is rewarded for it handsomely, as we shall see next week. Peter demonstrates the power of faith by walking on the stormy sea. So, I suggest that you spend a bit of time, if you are so inclined, looking into your own faith. How to go about that? You might begin by meditating on the Apostles' Creed, which can be found on page 53, among other places in the prayer book. This is the earliest and most elemental statement of Christian belief that we have. You might then go to the Nicene Creed, a later and fuller statement of the faith, with greater emphasis on Christology. It can be found in two translations on page 326 and 7. Having made it this far, I highly recommend the Catechism on page 845 perhaps the most helpful of all. It lays out in question and answer form what this church believes today. It may just answer some of those questions in the back of your mind that you've never gotten around to ask. Should you read it, you will find phrases that you have heard Father Brewer quote on many occasions. Remember that when push comes to shove, faith is the sine qua non of salvation. Those who have it, get it. Amen. Amen.